Well, good morning. On this Wednesday, in our 25th week, we continue in our studies of Luke, and we hear this morning from Ezra as well. Let's remind ourselves, Ezra, Ezra is with the remnant that returns from captivity in Persia, and they are returning now back to Jerusalem. King Cyrus allows them to return. In fact, he provides them with provisions, as you heard. They were able to reestablish the walls of Jerusalem, and he provided them with safe passage and the materiality they needed to reconstitute themselves. We're in this ninth chapter of Ezra. We're reading from the fifth through the ninth verse today. But in the ninth chapter, the reason Ezra has torn his cloak and pulled the hair from his beard and his hair, hair from his head is he's so distraught over what they, this remnant is now doing because they've been in captivity these 70 years and initially in Babylon and then taken into captivity, many of them moving then east into Susa. And King Cyrus and his generosity, a Persian king who's pagan, he's not Jewish, he's not Christian, not yet. Christ won't come for another 500 years. But King Cyrus recognizes the authenticity and the authority of the Jewish faith. And so he allows this remnant to return back. And Ezra says that. He says, since the days of our fathers, we have been in great guilt and on account of our iniquities. And he's speaking of the, how they have behaved, this, the, these people in captivity, because of their transgressions against the Lord. First, the Assyrians, and then secondly, the Babylonians would lay waste to Israel and Judah and take many, not all, but take many into captivity, first in Babylon and then in, in Persia. And now they've been allowed to return. And he's ashamed that even though they've just gone through this trial of having been in disobedience to God, and from a consequence of that, hardship has come in their life. Now, in the generosity of King Cyrus, they've been allowed to return and reconstitute their land and their place and their holy temple in Judah. And yet again, now that they've returned, they start to intermarry and intermingle with the local inhabitants who are there. And this is what we get in the first half of chapter 9. Is For they have taken some of their daughters as wives, meaning, meaning some of the the daughters of the pagan people who are there, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And why is that important? It's because the people of God, the people of Israel, by God's instruction, were to be kept separate. They were to, they, their way of living, their way of practicing their faith, the oath by which they controlled and managed their lives were to be in obedience to God the Father and not acknowledge these pagan gods. And yet the sons and daughters of the people of Israel are now intermingling with pagan daughters and sons and that compromises their faith because in that marriage relationship there's compromise now. The one spouse may acknowledge God and one may not and it creates tension and that's good teaching that the Lord had given them is to, to, to be equally yoked, to be united in their faith position. And so Ezra is distraught because of this practice, the fact that they are integrating themselves with society, with the common moors of society, are finding acceptance among these holy people. In our gospel reading from Luke, it's a similar theme. In this case, we're here now of the 12 being sent out, we're likewise in the ninth chapter, this time in Luke, and he's calling the 12 together. A series of events have happened in these first eight chapters in Luke, and now we're in the ninth chapter, and it's the ministry of the 12 being sent out, and he gives them instructions. 
He sent them out to proclaim the good news and to heal. They had twofold mission. Proclaim the good news and to heal those who are suffering. Operate with compassion. Bring joy and hope and serve those. Serve those who are in need. Serve those who are hurting. They need to be healed of all kinds of ailments. Physical ailments and emotional ailments, mental ailments, spiritual ailments. Be healing for them. But he gives them this command, simplicity of life. He says, take nothing for your journey. Don't take a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics. So travel light, travel simply. Travel light, travel simply. Do not encumber yourself with all this materiality and things. Don't, don't plan this big logistics movement because that will slow you down. It will make you in some ways ineffective. It will limit your ability to meet with many and be available with many if you're constantly concerned about, about your, your materiality and your provisions. He says further, whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. In other words, don't be just flittering about, but go about spreading the kingdom news, the, the good news of the kingdom far and wide, but have some sense of consistency and base while you're there. He says this, as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Boy, what are we supposed to do with that? Shake off the dust from your feet. How can that, how can that help us? Well, maybe it's this, that we called into the dignity of faith through our baptism have a responsibility to live that faith out. We don't coerce anyone into the Christian faith. We don't make anyone believe in the truth of Christ, the gospel message. When we're little, as our young Cabrini students are here, they are loved into the faith by their parents. Their parents are their foremost teachers in their lives and they invest very intentionally in living out the faith in front of their students, in front of their children, and for their children. They're life-giving, not only in a real sense of birthing them, but life-giving in the faith shared with them. But the children aren't coerced, they're loved, because at some point the children have the, the ability, when they reach majority, whatever that age is discerned to be, where the child can say, no, it's not for me. But by exposing the young ones to the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel when they're little and then seeing it lived out by all of you here faithfully so, the young ones have that written into their heart. They see truth, beauty, and goodness lived out authentically so that when they're older, they face those decisions in life and they confront the world, they confront the, the contemporary culture that's out there that may be antithetical to Christ's message they're able to discern that difference. They see truth, beauty, and goodness in their homes. They see it in our faith community. And then they see what the world offers. And they're able to discern that difference and make an informed choice about how they'll live their life. That's what our young, young ones are experiencing here. And it's what the parents of our Caprini Co-op and the parents who invest in Holy Family are trying to do. They're trying to promote life in the faith. And it's a privilege to witness it. Shaking the dust off your feet. Maybe it's this, in our own families especially, but in circles of friends or in a broader context, we have been exposed to a gospel truth. We recognize in our own imperfection and brokenness the mercy of God. We recognize that mercy because we've experienced it. So we're motivated to share that mercy with others. We want them to know that truth. We desire that they know that truth. But we can't make people accept that truth. We can't make it. And so um, sometimes I'll be asked by a person, Father, will you uh, talk to my friend 
and convince them, or talk to my spouse even, and convince them of the gospel truth. And I say, no. I will absolutely meet with them, but I will not convince them. Their heart isn't open to convincing, so it's just going to annoy them, and honestly annoy me, to try to spend, spend some amount of time convincing someone of a truth. I can't. If you're not open to receive it, I, I'm, I, there's, it's not going to be a very, very uh, successful conversation. But what I can do is definitely meet with them and offer respect and compassion and dignity. I can offer those things and absolutely make myself available as best able to, to meet and have those conversations. But I can't make anyone believe. We oftentimes have to arrive in a point in our lives where we've tried out what the world has to offer. We've, we've explored the world's wisdom and then realized, boy, that didn't work out so well. Now I'm ready to hear the gospel message if we're an adult. Now I'm ready to hear the gospel message because I've had to experience the absence of truth. I've had to experience the absence of truth, beauty, and goodness. Now I'm ready to receive what truth, beauty, and goodness is. So as we go forward in our life today, let's think about our messaging. One, through the dignity of our baptism, we are called to live a separate life. That doesn't mean in, a, in an enclave somewhere, sequestered away from the world. There's times for that in our life. We call that prayer, call that sanctuary of the home. That's true. But our day-to-day -day life, for most of us, is not to be lived sequestered away. It's to go out into the world. That's the message to the 12 disciples. Go out into the world, bringing the good news. He didn't say, go to a cave on the coast and go live there. That's not what he said. So we live the truth. We're out, we're out in the world, and as popularly said, we're not of the world. We're, we're in the world. We're just not of the world. Secondly, don't be dismayed by the world's rejection. The world will reject you. It will reject the followers of Christ. Paul speaks to that beautifully. John speaks to that. He captures that in his 15th chapter, verse 18. If the world hates you, this is our Lord speaking, remember it hated me first. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. So if we identify as a follower of Christ, we can expect to receive some resistance from a world that does not want to be in obedience to him. But what we, what we do is live our life as authentically as we can, we stand in the truth of the gospel. We speak it when asked. We give an answer for the hope that we have, which is hope in Jesus Christ, his mercy, his salvation. We live that out as authentically as we can. We are not ashamed. We are not apologetic in that faith position because the world is actually seeking it. They're often not sure how to ask. And let's, let's not fool ourselves. It is certainly the case that, certainly in the United States, the promotion of divergent ideas away from the truth of Christ have become more accelerated, it would seem, in, in, the, in the last several decades, where ideas are promoted and ways of being are promoted that are so antithetical to Christ's love and mercy and harmful in the end to those who would practice them. And then uh, you can be considered a fool or narrow-minded if you don't accept the ways of the world. Well, don't tear out the hair from your beard or your head, or you don't need to tear your mantle as Ezra did. We needn't do that. What we can do is do exactly what we're doing right here. Come here together as a faith community, worship our Lord, come in humility, acknowledge our own imperfections and faults, be fed at the Eucharistic table, then like the disciples, go back out into the world, sharing that good news and healing many with the words and with the prayers that we carry. God bless you.